I knew you'd remember. <laughs> I knew you'd remember because you taught it. All right, the temptation of Jesus. All right, now, as soon as Jesus uh, finished his temptation, we read last week about how um, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, remember, he went through the power of the Spirit to be tempted. Now he's going into ministry through the power of the Spirit. Uh, and the report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And now this is the passage we're going to look at tonight. Let me just read it to you. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephrath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill where the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay, so that's what we're going to study tonight. Okay, now, where did Jesus go here? In what city? Okay, and that city is his hometown, correct? Where he grew up. Yeah, what about, um, what do we know about Nazareth, just as a city? What do you know about it? Nothing good comes out of it. It's not on the beaten path. It's not even on the not beaten path. It's like nowhere. Um, in order to go to the nearest town that had anybody, really, uh, you had to go about 40 miles north. Um probably a common trip that Jesus took as a child to go wherever. Chances are Joseph spent a lot of time uh, selling goods uh, just north of there. But Nazareth in itself was a, a almost a nothing kind of town. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, there's a synagogue in Nazareth. Okay, What does that tell you about the city? There's at least 10 Jewish males. Okay. Jewish law said if there's 10 Jewish males, then there had to be a synagogue. If there wasn't a synagogue, then the 8, 6, 5, 4, whatever number there were, had to meet every Sabbath down by the river. Okay, 
And down by the river was easy because every town had to have water, so there's a river somewhere. Um, and so we know that there were at least 10 Jewish males uh, that lived in this city. Now, the interesting thing is uh, the service that they had had to have at least 10 men there. Um, and it followed the same pattern. Okay, so we know from Josephus and others that the typical service, the congregation recites the Shema. Do you know what the Shema is? Somebody read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Through nine. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay. So the service usually starts off with the uh, citation of the Shema. That's true in almost every Jewish service. Then they would share in prayers, sometimes <clears throat> set prayers, like there was one called 18 Benedictions where they would pray, others that were more free form. Then there was a reading from God's law, uh, usually a reading of a scroll, a reading of, of the text, uh, and then followed by a reading of the prophets. So they would read something from one of the prophets. Um, and typically, at the time of Jesus, the texts were read in Hebrew and then translated for the congregation into Aramaic, which was the language of uh, the people there. Um, and it usually ties the readings together. So what you read from the law is often what you tie when you read from the prophets as well. Okay, So uh, typically, that's, that's the case. Now, Jesus um, speaks during the exposition part of the sermon. So they read the law, and then a teacher would expand on that much like a sermon. Um, and so that's basically uh, what he does. Now, this one's interesting because Jesus, it says, comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He went to the, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. This is his home church, right? He's probably been there hundreds of times. Um, and, um, and he stood up to read. Okay, now here's the thing. When they read they stand up when they hear the word of god they stand up when they read from the scriptures they stand up okay it's a reverence thing when somebody teaches the teacher sits down okay not everybody sits down usually they sort of their choice but most people continue to stand while the teacher's teaching which obviously means he didn't teach as long as i teach because people would sit down <laughs> but the point is is that uh you know in 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 scripture Height is always important. Okay, so when you're reading the Bible and you see a change in height, standing versus sitting, sitting versus lying down, up high versus down low, looking up versus looking down, those are always important in Jewish writings. Okay, so we see here that it says Jesus came to Nazareth, he brought up, 
He went to the synagogue. He stood up to read. Okay. And then look at uh, verse 20. What does it say? And sat down, okay? Teachers teach, particularly rabbis, teach from a humble position, not a power one. Okay? So typically when you, when you began to teach, you would sit down uh, because you're, you're basically positioning yourself under God as you teach the word. Does that make sense? So Jesus says this weird thing. He unrolls the scroll. Okay, so picture that. They gave, this is the scroll we're told of Isaiah. So they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Okay, he opens the scroll. He goes down to what we know as Isaiah 61, um, and he begins to read. Okay, so as the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Okay, so let's read what he said. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah, I've been anointed. I've been set apart. What does anointed mean? Set apart. Set apart, uh, positioned for something, uh, identified, uh, sanctified for a process or a mission or whatever. You're set apart for that. Okay, now he says, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Okay. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. In recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, now he's reading Isaiah 61. So somebody go to Isaiah 61. And I'll read it so we get it on the recording. Okay, Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay? Now, do you see a problem here? Jesus is reading Isaiah 61. He didn't complete it, but there's something else here that's different. Okay. Okay, let me help you out. Okay, he says, um, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's in Luke. And we look down at Isaiah to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's good. Then he says, and recovery of sight to the blind. But in Isaiah 61, it says, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Okay. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so Jesus reading Isaiah 61 in the scroll they gave to him talks about blind people um, in our scriptures it doesn't talk about blind people so a lot of people have used this passage to say okay the bible's made up or jesus misquoted scripture or jesus wasn't perfect or the scriptures weren't there 
I mean, this, this passage has been looked at a lot. Um, and a lot of people use it kind of to uh, challenge whether Jesus was inserting things into the text that wasn't there, whether he was misreading it, whether the text was inaccurate, whether the translations are inaccurate. Um, and um, those who have challenged that don't really understand uh, Greek and Hebrew. Okay? So remember, one of the critical things I say at all time about Greek and Hebrew, particularly Greek, is the words have meaning, but they also have a picture that goes with them. In other words, it's not like we have adverbs. They don't have adverbs. Each word carries its own adverb. Okay, So let's say we said um, uh, he was as tired as a lazy dog on a porch. Okay, We would breath all that out. They would have one word that means like fatigue, but everybody understood it meant like a lazy dog on a porch. Okay, so the Greek words in particular are very pictorial. They have a meaning, and then they have a sort of an example that goes with them. Okay, so that's important to know as you look at this. Now, the question is, where did Jesus get a scripture that talks about providing light or sight to the blind? Okay, now, usually the question that comes up here is one that I think we need to consider, which is what Bible did Jesus have available to him? Okay. In other words, when Jesus picked up the scroll, the scriptures, what is he reading? Okay. Well, it's not the New King James, and it's not the ESV, it's not the NIV, and it's not the the uh, uh, King James version. Okay. Most likely, at the time in the first century, in a poor town in a city that's far away from anywhere, when they handed him that script, they handed him a Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. Okay, remember when they translate Bibles, they translate them all different ways. One way is to translate it in Latin and then translate that into Hebrew. The other is to go Greek or into English or whatever. The other way is to go straight from the original language into that. Okay, but the question is, okay, when Jesus was handed that scroll from the Septuagint, what did it say? Okay, almost every time you see a scripture difference in the first century, the Bible they had access to is the Septuagint, okay? And in the Septuagint, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Okay? So Jesus is quoting exactly what was in the Septuagint, Okay? Uh, he's talking about sight to the blind. Now, the problem is you may be sitting here going, well, wait a minute. My Bible doesn't have that. ESV doesn't have those words. Why doesn't the ESV have those words? And so um, um, we have to sort of go deeper to try to understand what that means. Okay. Now, we see in various texts from the first century, the Septuagint and other copies, things from the Dead Sea Scrolls, things from other places. When Isaiah 61 is quoted, um, the Hebrew version will often say freedom to prisoners and release from darkness. Okay? So what you have to understand is when we, when we say that he had um, uh, helped or brought light to the blind, okay, we picture a blind man and light. Okay? The image in Hebrew, the image in Greek that goes with that passage is that of somebody who's been in captivity so long 
that they come out of the darkness and the light blinds them. Okay, that's the picture of the word. Okay, so you'll see in scripture several times where those two are connected. The idea of getting your sight and being free. Getting your sight and being unbound. Okay, let's go to, oh, where do we want to go? Let's go to, uh, where did I put that? How about Isaiah 42? Is that the one I want? Yeah, okay, Isaiah 42. Let me read to you starting in verse 5. Okay. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Okay? So what we need to understand here is that to an audience, a Hebrew Jewish audience, those are all similes. They're all the same thing. Light to the dark, out of prison, seeing the light, being free, those are all tied together. Okay, now... Jesus is tying them together spiritually. What he's saying is, you know, you're in spiritual darkness. I'm going to bring you light and set you free from those things, okay? So a lot of times when you look at these, um, um, you have to begin to look at uh, what the actual word picture is. Look at how this one starts in 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay? A bruised reed he will not break. So you can see that this starts off, Isaiah 42, very much like Isaiah 61. Okay? And when you look at what Jesus is quoting, he's quoting Isaiah 61, but he's not misquoting it. Okay? He's quoting exactly what was there. Now, let's look at what it means. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. In other words, I'm on a mission from the Father. And here's what I do. Okay, Look at what he lists that he does. He proclaims good news to the poor. Okay, Liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, Now, as mentioned a minute ago, he cuts this verse short. Okay, If you go to Isaiah 61... And I'll read that to you, just what he says. He says, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the very next line is, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Okay, now Jesus doesn't quote that part of the scripture. It's true, he is here to bring vengeance, but not on this mission. Okay, so he purposely drops it. He doesn't mention that he's here to save this time. His day of vengeance will come next time. So when you look at verse uh, uh, 2, Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of the vengeance of our Lord, that's a 2,000-year comma. And still counting. Okay? So when he goes into Nazareth and he tells them, you know, here I am, I'm going to read the Spirit. He's very much saying the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. And he takes up the scroll, he gives it back, to the attendant and he sits down 
And the scriptures say all eyes are fixed on him. Okay? They're waiting to see what he's going to say. He has just claimed to be the Messiah. Okay? Um, At least he's about to. So he reads Isaiah 61. They're all familiar with it. And he sits down. And all the eyes are fixed on him. Remember, he's the local son gone good. He made good. He's relatively famous even already. (coughs) And it says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? Notice anything about that statement? Okay, past tense. What does that mean? Done? Completed? Okay, what else is there? He's clearly claiming to be the Messiah. It's it's a bold declaration. Right, but there's a specific word there that's interesting. Hearing. Remember, we've talked in the past about the difference in Hebrew between listening and hearing. Hearing brings with it understanding. Hearing brings with it a deeper understanding than just listening. Okay? Uh, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, not let him listen. Okay? Many people listen and never hear. So the word here is hearing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, there's a two-part thing going on here. I'm proclaiming who I am and claiming to be the Messiah, but you are going to have to respond to it. Okay? You're going to have to hear. Okay? So today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the Messiah, I'm here, and I just told you. Make sense? Okay, now, at first it says, verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Okay? So initially, they're very proud of their home son. Right? I mean, wow, he just proclaimed to be the Messiah. It hasn't really dawned on him yet what he actually said. And that's true in a lot of people, particularly a lot of sermons. People listen to him and they go, wow, that was really good. And then they go home and think, wait a minute. What did he actually, what did he say about me? Um, and so there's that sort of problem. And it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, at some point it dawns on them, wait a minute. He just claimed to be the Messiah. I remember when he was a snotty-nosed kid running around town, you know, doing his thing. Now he's claiming to be the Messiah, all right? And we know his dad. Yeah, we know his dad, and we're not that impressed, okay? Now here's the thing. Up in the upper thing, after he says he's going to proclaim good news to the poor, let's look at those for just a minute. Um, He talks about uh, proclaim good news to the poor. What what is that? What's that good news to the poor? (coughs) What's he talking about? What do you think? Talking about poor in spirit. Sorry? Is he talking about poor in spirit? Uh, the word here is actually poor, poor, but it could be spirit as well. So he's basically saying, look, I'm bringing good news to everybody who's been oppressed. I'm bringing good news to everybody who's poor in spirit, poor in money, poor in resources, poor in status, poor in, you just fill it in. He's, he's basically... Um, uh, bringing good news to the poor. What's the other word for good news? Gospel. gospel. Okay. He could just as easily said, I'm bringing the gospel to the poor. Okay. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Okay. Now, it's important to realize that when you see captivity in the Bible, 
most Jewish people think of their trip to Babylon. Slavery. Yes, that they were basically because of their disobedience to God, they were in captivity. So when you see Jewish people talk about captivity, they're basically talking about the history of their nation, either in Egypt or in Babylon. And if they're in the northern kingdom, then Assyrians. But either way, the, the, the Israelites were carried off to captivity and then brought back from captivity because they knew of their sin and their disobedience. So what he's saying here is, look, we're going to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's the Jewish people. In their mind, what they're hearing is the Messiah, when he comes, will bring liberty, freedom to the Jewish people. Okay? To them, captivity was a total Jewish concept. Had nothing to do with Gentiles, had nothing to do with anybody else. It's purely a Jewish thing. Okay? We are in captivity because of our disobedience to God. Our God, who's only our God and nobody else's God, is going to come one day, send the Messiah, and free us from the captivity that we're in now. They fully recognize that they've spent 400 years in captivity because of their disobedience. Okay? So remember, God's been silent up until Jesus shows up on the scene. So they know they've been disobedient, and they know that they have been in captivity. He says, recovery of sight to the blind, which we talked about, and to set to liberty those who are oppressed. Those two go together. Okay, liberty, freedom, out of jail, out of the darkness, into the light. Those two things are linked together. Okay? And then he says something very interesting. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? Year of the Lord's favor. I'm sorry, what? Is it tied to the year of Jubilee? Yes, what is the year of Jubilee? The 49th year when all the the, uh, bondmen are set free. Okay. And other things. Yeah, so let's talk about... Debts are... Let's talk about a jubilee year because it tells you a lot about God. Okay, where do we get the idea of a jubilee year? Does anybody know? Leviticus twenty five twenty three. Why don't we go there? Leviticus twenty five twenty three. All right. So here's what it says: The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what the brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then he himself becomes prosperous and finds funds to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to who he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient funds to recover it, then what sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee? In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. Okay, so basically God set up a system where after seven perfect sevens, seven times seven is 49, there's a year, a Jubilee year. And during that year, everything rests. No crops are planted. People are... um, uh, the land is at full rest. It's let fallow. Huh? The land is let fallow. Yes, let fallow. Yes. And it's basically no one plants anything. But also during that year, every debt is freed, every slave is freed, every person is freed, any kind of uh, 
I wrote down a couple of these. Let me just make sure I get them all. Uh, uh, no agricultural work is allowed. It's like a one-year Sabbath. Um, slaves are released. All property is returned to the original family. Land is returned to the original family. Uh, and it begins with a shofar blast on Rosh Hashanah. Um, and um, it's every 50 years. Now, here's the thing that you may not know. The Jubilee was for everybody, not just the Jewish people. Okay, so the year of the Jubilee was for anybody that was there. It wasn't that you just freed your Jewish slaves, you freed every slave. It wasn't that you just canceled debts, you cancel every debt. In fact, you'll hear a passage in the New Testament where people are warned not to look to see when the Jubilee year is to decide if they're going to loan something to somebody. Okay, Because you can imagine as year 48, 49, and 50 came along, Chances of you getting somebody to loan you something is probably pretty slim because you're going to get it back or sell it. You're going to get it back, right? So you'll see Paul and other, I think it's Paul, reference that, you know, if you, if you look to give loans based on the Jubilee year, then you're dishonoring God and you're disobeying him, okay? Um, so we have this idea of that. Now, the question is, is the Jubilee year celebrated now? What do you think? I think some, some Any Catholics in the room? Jubilee year? I'd say no. Okay. If anybody celebrates it on the Protestant side, it's the Catholics. Okay. I remember when I was in Israel once, they were getting ready for their Jubilee year. Um, and um, uh, I think they had the date wrong because it wasn't 50 years ago. Um, but the next Jubilee year, if you count it out from the schedule... Okay, from the time of the first revealing of it, uh, this will be the 70th Jubilee year in 2025. Wow. It'll begin with the shofar blowing in October of 24. Okay, it's how it falls on our calendar. But it doesn't start for six months later, which would be March, roughly March 1st of 2025. Okay? Now, the Jewish people don't really celebrate the Jubilee year either anymore. Um, it's one of the reasons God's so upset with them. Too. Yes. And because it, it, early on, when, when they went into the promised land, they understood that it was God's land and God was giving it to them. And Moses divided it up by the families. And it was God's intent that the families wouldn't be oppressing one another. And so the year of Jubilee was important so that each family got back to the inheritance that God had given them. Right. To start fresh. Yes. And... The other thing that's interesting is you can't own land in Israel. You know that? Didn't know that? No one owned lands in Israel. It all belongs to God. So you can lease the land. Like if you have a home and you have a 30-year mortgage, you have a 30-year lease. You don't own the land at all. Okay? And the Jubilee year is what sort of set that up. The idea was it all belongs to God. Uh, and there have been people over the years that have tried to say, okay, every Jubilee year, everything goes back to the government. <laughs> uh <laughs> that's not what God said either. Yeah, that's not what he said either. Okay, but but in Israel you can't buy land. You, no one owns land. It's belonged to the belongs to God. That's why there's a lot of arguments in Israel about the apartments they're building on the out by the Gaza Strip and in other areas because people are claiming ownership of the land and the Jewish people are claiming we don't own it. It's God's. Um, but we're going to use it. So it's kind of an odd thing. But the Jubilee year is the idea of free owner debts. And if you think about it, 
our economy would be so much better if every 50 years, and that's not that often, that's probably once in a lifetime, all debts are free. In other words, credit card debt stops, home mortgage, and we start all over. And, um, and that really was God's sort of a, okay, you've had seven sevens, so seven, seven perfect years, seven sevens. We blow the horn, and then for a year, everything rests. Now, if you look at land, one of the problems with land around the world is it's never had rest. Okay, the crops have to have a year of fallow, right? They have to have a year where nothing happens. So they can then again go another 50 years or so. Um, and so this concept um, of letting the land rest, doing all these things, it comes from, uh, from Leviticus. It was one of God's requirements. Um, and so after seven years of Sabbaths, we reach the 50th year. Okay, does that make sense? So what Jesus is saying is he set me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. It's a jubilee year. Okay, not only are you being freed from the debts you have from people, I'm giving you a chance to be free of the debts you have from God himself. Okay, I'm giving you freedom from your sin. I'm, I'm allowing you to come out of that dark prison that you're in. I'm the Messiah, and I'm bringing to you the good news that this is a jubilee year, and in particular a jubilee time in your life. Does that make sense? Okay, so he rolls back the scroll. He sits down. He says, today the scripture's been fulfilled. So he might as well said, hey, guys, I'm the Messiah. Deal with it, right? And they began, initially, they're all thrilled about it, and then they start to realize this is Joseph's son. Um, and um, let me just show you one other thing. You mentioned it. Um, Leviticus 26, the Israelites went into captivity for one reason, was because they didn't observe the Jubilee year, all right? Um, and... Um, it points to the cross, obviously, that Christ is going to pay the debt and everybody's going to be set free. Uh, so it has that sort of sense. Um, and so um, it would be kind of cool, I thought, to have every boss give you a year off during that year. Um, yeah, and the whole country would do it at the same time. I mean, it would be like that year. Um, so you can see why they called it Jubilee. Okay, now here's the thing. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And then he does this God thing that freaks him out. Okay, one of the things you'll often see is Jesus will claim something, and then they're all like considering it, and then he does this like God thing. Okay, well, here's the God thing he does. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. He just read their minds. Okay, and they know it. It's like, Nailed us. Um, what they're really saying is, look, we've heard you've done miracles at Capernaum. Okay? And now you're at your hometown. You know, show us some love here. We, we want to see this happen. Now, what does that tell you about the timing of this passage? Did Jesus come straight from the desert with Satan and go straight to Nazareth? No. No. Okay, I've heard people preach that, actually. He went straight to his home. No, he didn't, okay? In fact, if you read John 1, chapter 1 through about 7, he did all kinds of things over at Capernaum, uh, and John, uh, John points those out. He, he uh, does several miracles there, and obviously his word, his, his reputation has preceded him in his hometown, and now he's come home, okay? So he says, uh, we've heard we, what 
we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Is that true? Well, by their own words, it is. They say, hey, we know who this guy's father is. He's not who he claims to yes. be. They, they're doubting his divinity. Yes. Um, he says, but in See, truth I, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heavens were shut for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. Okay? Y'all remember the story of Elijah and the rain and Mount Carmel and being up on top with the prophets of Baal and the whole story and all those kind of things. I mean, we got all that down, right? Okay, so Jesus is now quoting that. What does that do, by the way, when Jesus begins to speak of that? Anytime Jesus speaks to the Old Testament, he validates the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? He's saying, he wasn't saying, oh, remember that made-up story about the time they did whatever and this and this? When he quotes it, he's putting his stamp on it. This was a historic moment. It happened. Okay? Same thing when he talks about is in the day of Noah. Okay? I'll be in the belly of the whale for three days. Well, he's not talking about, you know, remember that made-up story about Noah? He's putting a historical stamp on it. Okay? And so... It's always interesting when you see Jesus begin to quote, validate, or reference the Old Testament. And it's critical to see because you can't understand Jesus if you don't understand the Old Testament. And he links himself to it over and over and over. A lot of churches, Protestant churches in the U.S. are New Testament churches. Okay, They try to only study the New Testament. You can't get the picture of what Jesus was here to do if you don't understand the culture his Jewishness, his history, what the culture meant, all those kind of things are really important. Okay, and he says, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah. Okay, and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. Okay, now, who's Elijah? He's one of the major prophets. One of the major prophets, Okay. And what kind of prophet is he? Dead. Dead? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, actually, he was taking yeah. up. Yeah, he actually rode the chariot. What? Um, Elijah's a Jewish prophet, right? Yes. Who does he speak to? Jewish people, right? Okay, so Jesus says, look. You want me to do all these miracles? I'm going to tell you, in the day of Elijah, the heavens were open. It was a famine over all the land. Elijah wasn't sent to one single Jewish person. Okay? Only to Zephyrath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, Elijah, the Jewish prophet, went to a Gentile. Okay? Well, it could have been because he was fleeing for his life, and that's how most people would read it. Yes. But, but the fact is is that it wasn't just King Ahab and Jezebel That's correct. that were after him. It was the fact that the people weren't for him. Right. But Elijah went to a, I mean, Jesus is basically saying, look, there are many widows in Israel who had problems when it didn't rain and who were starving and dying and all those kind of things. And Elijah didn't go to one of them. He went to a Gentile instead. Okay. Now, second one. There were many lepers in Israel, notice, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. Okay? What's Jesus saying here? 
Okay, who were Elijah and Elisha? Major prophets, right? Right? I mean, they're big-time prophets. Elisha essentially carried the mantle of Elijah and That's right. taken up into heaven. And then Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's That's spirit, correct. and he received it. Right. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, these two <coughs> great prophets, Jewish prophets, were sent by God to Israel, but the message wasn't received. And so they went to the Gentiles. Okay? And what he's telling them is, and that's you. I'm right here. I'm a prophet. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming to you, but you're not believing me. Okay? And he's foreshadowing, I'm going to the Gentiles. Okay? And you see this throughout all of Jesus' ministry. He comes to the Jewish people. They push back. And then he goes. So he says, look, I'm in my hometown. You're not going to believe me. Okay? And, he, and as soon as he says this, notice how they change. Read verse 22. And all spoke well of him. Who did? All of them? Every one of them, right? Okay, now we come down. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Yes. Turned on a dime. Yeah, like that. Okay? Now, the, what turned them was not that he read Isaiah 61 and claimed to be the Messiah. They marveled at that. What turned it was, he said, and you're not believing me, just like other people didn't believe the prophets, and you're going to be cast out. This is not going to work for you. Okay, so they realized that not only are they rejecting him, he's telling them they're rejecting him. All right? Now, it says here they're all filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. Okay, now, a couple things you need to know. One, if you go to Nazareth today, it's a pretty impressive cliff they tried to throw him off of. You can literally go there and look down. It's, it would be deadly. Um, and you can walk along the edge of it, and you can just picture. I mean, that, it's not like, this is the thing I think is so great about Scripture. The geography matches. If they say there's a cliff outside of, uh, there's a mountain. It's a straight-off sheer drop-off cliff right outside of Nazareth. Okay? And um, the other thing was is that the according to Jewish law, how did you stone somebody? That's actually how they did it in the first century. According to Jewish law, you threw them off a cliff. And if that didn't kill them, then you threw stones down on them. And the reason they did it that way was the stones have a much bigger impact if they're delivered from 60 feet than if they're delivered from 4 feet. Okay? So um, he talks about how they drove him out to the brow of the hill so they could throw him down the cliff. Why are they doing that? They don't like what he's saying. What what right do they have to try to kill him? They're the leaders. They're protecting God's word. They could make the argument that he was blaspheming scripture. Okay, because he's because claiming, he's claiming, to, be claiming to be the Messiah. Right. Okay, and but why are they really throwing him off the cliff? Because they were forcing a miracle on him. Maybe he basically he held up a mirror to them and they didn't like what they saw exactly all right now here's the thing who sent jesus to nazareth spirit spirit what's the message of the gospel the proclaim the good news i'm going to present jesus to you 
He's going to show you yourself and you have to respond. Okay? From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the gospel message is presented over and over and over. I'm the Messiah. What are you going to do about it? Okay? Well, they may have well have yelled crucify him because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill him. Okay, now, the thing that's interesting is in Jewish law, under the Romans, they didn't have the authority to kill him. Okay, they had no more authority to kill him here than they would 30 years later. Right? Remember in the whole story of Jesus, how they had to go to the Romans to, to kill him or whatever. But if he fell off a cliff yeah. and a bunch of rocks happened to land on him, I mean, bad luck, you know. Better spelunking next time, whatever it is. Um, but they're upset with what he reveals about them more than what he claims to be. And that's true of almost everybody who's faced with the gospel. Even today. Even today. Especially today. I'm, I'm being shown Jesus. He is the Messiah. Okay. I'm kind of drawn to that. It's kind of cool. He's the Messiah. Just like they were. All were wonder, right? But now he points the gospel at me. And says, I'm a sinner and I need to repent. Right? Now that gospel, that Messiah thing is not so cool anymore. Because if I can accept him without having to look at myself, I'm all in. That's what they're doing. Right? All marveled. If he kept his mouth shut, they probably had a parade for him. But then he says, this message, let me show you you and what you're thinking about. Okay? So they asked him for a miracle and he gives them two. They don't recognize it. The first miracle is, let me tell you what you're really thinking. The second miracle is in verse 30. Mm -hmm. But passing through their midst, he went away. How does that happen? It's the Holy Spirit. Exactly. So they actually saw the miracle. They just didn't recognize it. Who does, okay, I, I say this all the time. Who do you think Jesus looks like? I believe Jesus looks like Danny DeVito. Um, and I can back that up scripturally um, because the scriptures say that he had nothing about him that was attractive to anybody nothing about him that would stand out to anybody he could mix himself and dissolve in crowds he was a very ordinary typical Jewish man he was not a blue eyed rock star no he, he, he was very basic, okay? And he's far more like Danny DeVito, I think, than almost anybody else I can think of. You know, just an ordinary-looking, maybe heavy-set kind of Jewish guy. Um, but he's been portrayed, uh, in my opinion, by um, artists, um, maybe women, um, that he's like their Messiah. He's the rock star. And that's not the case. So he could dissolve into a crowd pretty quickly. He does it at the temple later on. He does it several times in his ministry. Um, so George Burns, maybe. Uh, yeah, because I've always seen Danny DeVito and Zacchaeus. That's possible. Danny DeVito could have been Zacchaeus. Um, but the idea of ordinary Jewish... Jerry Seinfeld? I don't know, maybe not. Um, But very Jewish ordinary, not like what we see on TV. It's ridiculous. Um, And so Jesus has gone to his hometown. Why, 
why does he go to his hometown to make this announcement? Why is this so important? What does it foreshadow? The crucifixion and the cross. Yeah, his ministry for the next three years is going to go to the Jewish people and say, I'm your Messiah. Look at the scriptures. And they're going to reject him over and over and over. Okay? If you wanted the story of Jesus, this is it right here. He presents the gospel. He claims to be the Messiah. The Spirit takes him to place to place. God reveals who he is. People are drawn to that until they realize he came to save them because they're sinners and they need to repent. That doesn't align with many people's ideas of themselves as God. Okay, And for people to accept Christ and to receive the gift that he offers, there has to be brokenness about sin. There's got to be repentance. There's got to be a turning, a confession. So he basically, I mean, the good news is God came to earth, and that's great. A bunch of people just celebrated Christmas, but they haven't dealt with this yet, right? I mean, that's where the change happens. That's where the spirit becomes involved. That's where accepting the gift becomes involved. So the very core essence of the gospel message is right here. The one proclaimed years ago as the Messiah, presents himself as the Messiah. His revelation to them is completed as past tense, right? He tells them who he is. They're drawn to that. Most people are. Many people in churches are drawn to that. But they've never really dealt with the fact that his message is, you're a broken sinner who deserves hell. Um, they see a big brother who looks like a rock star who you get to go hang with. And that's really not the message here, okay? And, and the fact that the reputation that came from Capernaum was about physical miracles that he was doing. Even today, we're all focused on the physical miracles. Can you yeah. heal me? Can you make me wealthy? Can you make me happy? And, and we're missing the spiritual gift that God's trying to give us. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the point. And Jesus, he says over and over, essentially, you keep asking for a miracle. I'm the miracle. <laughs> I mean, I'm here. So what else could you possibly need or want? Um, and we're going to see that um, later on, you know, he's going to lament over, over the Jewish people on his way to the cross. You know, I came to you. I presented myself as the Messiah, as the Savior. Your prophets foretold to me, but you didn't recognize me. And he talks about, if only I could gather you like hens and pull you. Remember that whole, the prayer over the whole Jewish people? And at that point, he's basically saying, look, I'm now going to the Gentiles. Okay, well, that's in this story right here. Same thing. He presented himself to his own church. They rejected him. He tells them, look, God sent him to the Gentiles, and that's where he's going to send me if the Jewish people reject me, like you are rejecting me. Right. So basically, um, he he's bringing back to them the idea of their own captivity. That because they're rejecting him, they're going to be in captivity and remain in darkness. And so he does come to um, bring uh, light to the blind and free the captives and uh, proclaim good news to the poor. Um, and to proclaim the year, the year of the Lord's favor. So why does Luke include this passage first? He could have talked about all the things that happened at Capernaum, right? He could have talked about miracle at Cana. He could have talked about... By the time this story comes, he, Jesus already picked some disciples. He's already gone to the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Because this is the, the 
essence of the spiritual decision that each and every one of us has to make. Right. And if, but if you look at like John's writings, right? John goes, his first thing is the miracle at Cana. Mm -hmm. Okay. And John's writings include um, the uh, Nicodemus and some of those kind of stories, right? Whereas Luke skips that and goes straight to a Messiah presenting himself to Jewish people and going to Gentiles. Right? Who is he writing to? Gentiles. Okay? So you have to, when you start to look at why did he put this one here and not mention all those other things, his purpose here is to give a historical recording of Jesus and his ministry that led to basically the Church of Acts. Okay? The Gentiles. So he has a little bit different part of a, not a, this is a slant. It's the way he sees it. Um, and so... Huh? It's completing the picture. Yeah, you got to remember that that scriptures, the gospels in particular, are not photographs; they're paintings. Okay, in other words, the difference that what I mean by that is, if I stopped right now and just took a picture of our room, okay, I would capture all of us as we are in this instant, right? And it may be a good picture of you, a bad picture of you, whatever, but it would be an accurate representation of you at this very moment. Okay. Now people would have to look and sort of decide, you know, what, how are you doing in that picture? What does that mean, all right? Whereas an artist who does a painting is going to show you in the light they see you in. In other words, the Gospels are very much an artistic painting. Luke sees Jesus in a certain way. Mark, or Mark sees him in a certain way. Matthew sees him in a certain way. And they're going to paint him with words and images the way they see him. Does that make sense? That's why you don't have four identical Gospels. But remember, they're not trying to take a snapshot. They're trying to show you something. So if you look at John, he goes through miracle after miracle after miracle that the Jewish people should have recognized that proclaim him to be God and Messiah. Okay? And if you look at his story, he's going, I mean, you just read through John. He talks about Nicodemus being born again. How can I be born again? He goes story to story to story. He gets to John, and he ends up with, you know, the vine, the branch, I mean, all those kind of things. So he's very much talking about Israel. So... I think it's important to begin to see what Luke is trying to show us, which is this is how the gospel is going to be presented. And from this point on, everywhere you look, this gospel is going to be presented in the same way. Okay, But he gets rejected in his hometown, and that sort of sets up Luke's um, discussion. So Luke is going to go from rejecting his hometown Rejected by the Jews, going to the Protestant, but going to the Gentiles. Make sense? Um, so that's basically um, um, where we're at. So, any thoughts about this? Any ideas? Anything you see in here that you didn't see before, or that you thought maybe God was showing you tonight that looks at the way you look at things? What do you think the Jubilee year means for your salvation? Because I was reading um, one of the instances where the year of Jubilee, they were allowed to come back to their house. And that year that they lived there, they, they had the opportunity to reclaim the house. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't reclaim it at the end of the year, then they lost it. Yes, basically, 
All the property went back to the original family that owned it after 50 years. But sometimes those families didn't exist anymore. Okay, I mean, whole family wiped out, disease, plague, whatever, right? So that property became open for people. But, uh, yeah, basically it went back to the original owners. Um, now, the other problem with... Well, I don't. The other problem with that is where were the records kept of who owned the land? In the temple. Okay. What happened to the temple? Yeah, so nobody knew who anybody's land was anymore, much like they didn't know who the Messiah was, right? Very hard to track lineage and genealogy. Because unlike us, you grew up in a place and you stayed there, and your parents stayed there, and your grandparents stayed there, and your kids stayed there, and y'all been on that land since decades ago right um, but it was possible for a family to be wiped out or to be shamed how, how could they be shamed and lose their land well, if you don't manage your land and, and, and you're not responsible with the finances and take advantage of the debt then you can't afford well, in general, though, you don't have to buy your land back. It's given to you if you're willing to own it. The way you're shamed into losing your land is to never have a male offspring. Okay, because if you don't have a male offspring, then you have women. Where do women go when they get married? To their husband's house, right? So there were lots of reasons Jewish people wanted to have males. Remember I told you a few weeks ago about how when there was a birth, they paid musicians to show up. And if it was a male, they would sing songs and dance. If it was a female, they'd turn around and go home. Um, so there's a lot to this, actually, when you start to think about it. Um, but I think it's important to realize that um, from the very beginning, Jesus was very clear in proclaiming who he was, who we are in relationship to him, what response he expects from us, and... I still think today there's a lot of people that are like, well, when he shows me a miracle, I'll believe. Um, and that's just, that's like, it's old school. Uh, it goes back to Nazareth. Nazareth. Um, so, um, yeah, so we're going to stop here. I think that's enough for one night. Um, um, there's one more thing I wanted to say, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, what I want to tell you is this is the um, only and last time Jesus has ever mentioned being in Nazareth. He never goes back, according to the scriptures. There's never a time when he goes back home. Okay? So, what do you think that means? Does that mean anything to you? Sometimes you only get one chance in life. Perhaps. Perhaps. In some ways, he's dust in his feet. Um... You know, he's shaking the dust. He doesn't come back. As far as we know, he doesn't come back. They try to kill him. He walks away. You never read about him being there again. Um, so, just a thought. All right? That's all I got. So, I hope that helps. Thank you. Um, who wants to pray us out?